you know, it, it's interesting. I just was involved in um, an exchange of letters on at, at Cosmonaut, which is this Marxist publication online. And um, one of the topics that was being that we we were debating was whether or not uh, we could have a form of knowledge that was that got beyond uh, the ruling ideology of capitalist mm -hmm. society, uh, or whether or whether or not there could be a universal uh, understanding in society, or or if. By calling for one, I was falling into ideology. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we, we still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. So, uh... Welcome to Sublation Media. Uh, it is, what is it? It's July 7th, 2023. I'm here with Cyber Dandy, the uh, you know, dangerous anarchist Cyber Dandy. Uh, and we're going to be discussing Herbert Marcuse uh, today. Um, Herb, Herbert Marcuse was a, a part of the Frankfurt School. He was probably the most famous Frankfurt School philosopher. Um, he died in 1979. He was well, I believe he was on the cover of Life magazine at one point. He was uh, embraced by the new left. Um, it was kind of considered maybe the grandfather of the new left. Uh, the guru. The, the guru of the new left. He, uh, he, he, you know, of course, as a member of the Frankfurt School, he worked with Adorna and Horkheimer. Um, his book, One Dimensional Man, was a, a bestseller, I believe. And he also wrote a book called Eros and Civilization, which I've taken a peek into. He was a Freudian Marxist. He, he uh, you know, embraced both uh, Freudian uh, ideas, psychoanalytic ideas, and Marxist ideas. I think lately his most notorious concept that gets kicked around a lot um, – both on the right and the left is uh, the notion of regressive tolerance, which um, which his his thought was that uh, given the power of capital and the uh, and state capitalism, um, it was no longer possible to uh, extend liberal toleration to fascist ideas that one needed to stamp out and limit the speech and uh, and the basically the civil liberties of of fascists in society uh, would be how I would put it. Um, his idea with one dimensional man uh, had to do with how the uh, the state capitalist formation and the uh, for and during the Fortis period had created conditions wherein 
um, the human subjectivity was diminished to the level of consumer just working to survive. He was more forgiving, less critical of the new left and the student movements um, in the 1960s and his uh, contemporary and, and uh, colleague and comrade Theodore Adorno was. They There are some uh, published letters between the two of them where they argue about the degree to which the Frankfurt School should be endorsing or, or uh, become getting involved with the, the new left. In particular, Marcuse was um, critical of Adorno for having called the police on some student protesters in his uh, lecture hall. Um, that was happening towards the end of Adorno's life. Um, so these are some of the, the some background thoughts I have on Marcuse. But today we're going to be talking about Marcuse as a Heideggerian. Right. Yeah. So something that Marcuse's, you know, his uh, popularity goes up and down, you know, each decade. Right now, he's a lot of people are looking back into him, as you said, because of his repressive tolerance ideas mm-hmm. and the way that uh, that ties into the whole free speech it's debate and things like repressive that. Repressive tolerance, not regressive tolerance. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. In his essay, Repressive Tolerance, Herbert Marcuse asked who is rational enough to be granted the right to free speech, given the requirement for rationality that is presupposed by John Stuart Mill and others when they advocate for this freedom. He wrote, who is qualified to make all these distinctions, definitions, identifications? Everyone in the maturity of his faculties as a human being. Everyone who has learned to think rationally and autonomously. In Plato, rationality is confirmed to the small number of philosopher kings. In Mill, every rational human being participates in the discussion and decision, but only as a rational being. When society has entered the phase of total administration and indoctrination, this would be a small number indeed, and not necessarily that of the elected representatives of the people. The problem is not that of an educational dictatorship, but that of breaking the tyranny of public opinion and its makers in the closed society. If we grant Marcuse his premise, that is, that society itself has become irrational, that due to the concentration of capital and the inequality to be found in the so-called marketplace of ideas, we can no longer take for granted that formal tolerance of all expression protected by, for example, the First Amendment of the United States, will suffice to assure that reason obtains, we are left with another question. Who can break the tyranny of public opinion, the ubiquity of falseness, in order to assist in the creation of an open society? One answer that we can reject is that the reign of the ruling ideology can be broken by the state. After all, if the freedom of civil society has been undone by any force, it has been undone by big capital in conjunction with the state. As Marcuse himself points out, in this society, for which the ideologists have proclaimed the end of ideology, the false consciousness has become the general consciousness, from the government down to its last objects. Marcuse suggests that the small and powerless minorities which struggle against the false consciousness and its beneficiaries must be helped. But they can't be helped by the general consciousness that is perpetrated 
and perpetuated by the government down to its last objects. If such a force is to emerge to break the spell of post-ideological conformity, we will have to find its origin within civil society itself. It will emerge from the contradictions within civil society and not from the false post-ideological and one-dimensional power of the state. To organize within civil society while insisting upon the maintenance of the repressive tolerance for speech as a precondition for the development of a political break is risky, and Marcuse expresses his fear of the consequences of such tolerance. He wrote, In Germany, the distance between the propaganda and the action, between the organization and its release on the people, had become too short. But the spreading of the word could have been stopped before it was too late. If democratic tolerance had been withdrawn when the future leaders started their campaign, mankind would have had a chance of avoiding Auschwitz and a world war. However, there was no repressive tolerance in Weimar Germany. As a civil liberties website FIRE points out, a 1922 law passed in response to violent political agitators, such as the Nazis, permitted Weimar authorities to censor press criticism of the government and advocacy of violence. This was followed by a number of emergency decrees expanding the power to censor newspapers. The Weimar Republic not only shut down hundreds of Nazi newspapers, in a two-year period they shut down 99 in Prussia alone, but they accelerated that crackdown on speech as the Nazis extended to power. Hitler himself was banned from speaking in several German states from 1925 until 1927. Far from being impediment to the spread of National Socialist ideology, Hitler and the Nazis used the attempts to suppress their speech as public relations coups. The party waved the ban like a bloody shirt to claim that they were being targeted for exposing the international conspiracy to suppress true German. Now, some might imagine that more suppression of speech, a more totalizing network of control, could have achieved the sort of blackout of dissent and wrong think that would have made such a public relations coup for reactionary forces impossible. However, as long as people might speak in private, any such effort would be bound to fail. After all, the value of free speech is the core value of all modern societies, and such a universally successful repressive apparatus would quickly become universally despised. It could only be maintained by violence, and that violence would not be aimed at breaking with repression, but at maintaining it. He's really like the epitome, I think, of sort of the new left ethos in America. Uh, and both in good ways and in bad ways um, when it comes to thinking about the working class and the status uh, of the working class as revolutionary subjects of history. Mm -hmm. So uh, what a lot of people don't talk about is that Marcuse actually began his uh, philosophical career as a student of Heidegger and even Husserl, he he flew to, uh, I think, Berlin or Freiburg or wherever they were, and was actually a student of theirs. So 
his first or his second dissertation was uh, something about Hegel's ontology, and it was uh, supposed to be written and approved by Heidegger. Uh, supposedly Heidegger never read it, and so it wasn't uh, put out immediately. But he anyway, he spent a, a good while as a, a writer in the in the tradition of phenomenology. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some Marcuse scholars will say that you could see this influence of Heidegger all the way through his, his writing, even after he switches over to being a Freudian um, and Hegelian Marxist. Mm-hmm. So uh, the reason I think that this is interesting is because Marcuse actually makes a pretty powerful argument for why Marxism uh would benefit from phenomenology. And what this goes back to is what's called the crisis of Marxism, which uh, for those who are unaware of that term, it basically means that uh, Marx predicted that the proletariat provided an understanding of the function of capitalism would rise up in revolt. Uh, That didn't happen. And so Marxists were left trying to figure out what to do about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, my understanding of the, the crisis of Marxism was that it arose in the 19th century um, in response to uh, the failure of revolution to take hold in response to the long depression uh, hmm. in the 19th century and that it, kind of expressed itself as a debate between the revisionists um, uh, like uh, Edward Bernstein and Kautsky and uh, I believe and others um, uh, who wanted to hold out against attempts to break from a Marxist understanding of political economy and politics both. Um, it, the the kind of reformism versus uh, uh, re- revolution debate stems from that period. Um, this is how I remember it. And that it had to do with whether or not what needed to occur was um, that, you know, the socialists should aim to take power within the bourgeois state uh, and guide the formation uh, and development of capital. Uh, or whether so that uh, socialism could evolve out of bourgeois society, or whether or not a, a radical uh, revolutionary break was necessary. So interesting. That's, yeah. That's... Uh, for whatever reason, and what I've been reading, the the crisis of Marxism is described as uh, something that happened in, I guess, the 50s 30s Mm. where the working Mm -hmm. class wasn't rising up anyway at least for Marcuse that was what the crisis was and he spent pretty much his whole career trying to figure that out Uh, the first way he attempted to put a finger on what was going on was through Heideggerian phenomenology later he turned to Freud Mm. so I mean it's certainly true that the failure of the 
the European Revolution overall, which which was you could definitely mark the total failure of the struggle for socialism throughout the West and certainly within Germany with the uh, you know rising up of Nazism and fascism. Um, that that death of the revolution um, required Marxists to reevaluate um, what had gone wrong in the socialist struggle, mm. that criticize the Second International um, and reevaluate um, the, the struggles uh, for socialism that uh, had gone on uh, you know throughout Europe and then also, um, that maybe the beginning of a the beginnings of a critique of the Soviet experience, experiment um, were beginning then as well. But the, the right, but I to the this idea that um, that the, what was going on was a, a kind of a critique of the working class. I mean, that was the there was something to that, I suppose, in in so much as they explored the. Uh, authoritarian personality that might be attracted to fascist uh, ideology. Um, uh, but to limit it to that, to say that the crisis of Marxism was a crisis within the working class or was conceived of as a, a failure of the working class, I think would be just be wrong. It was a failure of the socialist uh, struggle and of the party the socialist parties, the first and second international, the third international, the, the common turn. Um, uh, those were what that was. It was a self critique from revolutionaries of revolutionaries, I think. Um, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. The following is an excerpt from the first crisis of Marxian theory and the Bernstein Kautsky debate written by Terrence McLaughlin and R.T. Drake in 1976 for the journal Praxis. The crisis of Marxism was, in the last analysis, a product of the recovery from the Great Depression, that is, the Long Depression of the 19th century, which had not lit the torches of revolution prior to the rekindling of the fires of accumulation. The immediate evidence for the crisis to be found in a debate over the significance of the recovery for the strategy of the socialist movement. Marxists, including Engels, had looked for a swift worldwide proletarian revolution, either produced by the worsening of capitalist crisis or at least requiring a major crisis as a precondition. When recovery, instead of revolution, materialized, a debate started concerning the role of economic crisis and revolutionary theory. This was the so-called breakdown controversy. The breakdown controversy was an argument between the orthodox Marxists who claimed that capitalist crisis would continue to worsen, thereby creating a revolutionary conjuncture, and Bernstein's followers who participated in the controversy in order to reject revolutionary tactics. The latter argued that revolution is only justified if capitalism breaks down. For if the system will not fail of its own accord, then the class struggle can be ameliorated within the existing political framework, and men will be able to realize the continuance of free development. Bernstein argued 
at developing efficiency of information gathering, communication, and transportation, as well as the planning and rationalizing capacities of modern monopolies, would increasingly mitigate the severity of crises. As Kautsky noted at the time, Marx and Engels never produced a special theory of breakdown. However, though Marx held only the tendency for capitalist crisis to worsen, and even though Kautsky denied the theory, we still find most of the orthodox Marxists defending the theory as if it were a part of the sacraments handed down by Marx himself. Marx desired to show that capitalism is not transhistorical, that only through class struggle will the transition from one mode of production to another take place, and that this can take place only under definite historical conditions. Marx never lost sight of the dialectic between objective economic conditions and conscious class struggle and producing revolutionary change. However, in the very concept of breakdown, we find social relations objectified in a mechanistic way. Kautsky, the Pope of Socialism, answered that there was no such thing as a breakdown theory. He argued that while Marx and Engels believed economic conditions would worsen, the growing power and maturity of the proletariat would be the decisive factor in bringing about the transition to socialism. Kautsky arrived at his vision of chronic depression, where the continued existence of capitalist production remains possible, but it becomes completely intolerable for the masses. The crisis Marxism entered at the end of the century was perhaps most clearly evidenced in the breakdown controversy outlined above. The breakdown controversy was merely one symptom and a much larger syndrome in Marxist thought at the time. The Marxists of the Second International had no concepts with which to handle the phoenix flight of capitalism that they were experiencing. The Second International had developed a very mechanical view of Marxism and the world. This tendency is perhaps best exemplified in Engels' philosophical writing. Marx's historical materialism was superseded by an abstract dialectical materialism. The concept of the importance of the material in history was transformed from a concept concerning the social interaction of human beings and the process of securing the material conditions of life into a literal reference to matter. Thus, all phenomena, including social relations, became an expression of certain laws inherent in the nature of matter. This notion was transferred to the analysis of capitalism itself, to the capitalist economy. Marx's tendencies became laws, analogous to the laws of physics. I guess my own personal reason for becoming interested in this is, uh, you know, my whole shtick is existentialism and phenomenology. Mm -hmm. Whether you call it anarchism or Marxism, I tend to think it it will go in a direction of anti-authoritarianism. Just, I think it's sort of built into the existentialist framework, even though Heidegger clearly turned out to be a Nazi. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so... That's why I happened upon this. And also, I think uh, there's been a general um, eraser of phenomenology from the past of a number of thinkers that we consider canonical for, you know, today's sort of left wing discourse like Foucault uh, began with an extensive analysis of phenomenology, uh, uh, Derrida. 
uh, Marcuso like we have. And um, yeah, I could think you could you tell are... me how should I think of phenomenology, and how is it related to, if at all, to the phenomenology that might be spelled out by that was spelled out by Hegel and his phenomenology of spirit. What is what is it to become a phenomenologist? So, if you want to include Hegel, a really generic way is just to say that phenomenology is a description of appearances or the way that we experience, uh, um, well, that's actually more the existentialist branch. But uh, well, no, it's but, supposed but to Just be... tell me what the Husserl-Heideggerian phenomenology is. Then. So well, Husserl, so, so uh, the, the famous phrase is back to the things themselves. And phenomenology is the attempt to uh, understand what the essence of things are as they are experienced by us. So not as something detached um, from the context of the subject, but the way that the subject is experiencing something is actually where you want to begin. Now, the modification that Heidegger makes to phenomenology is he rejects this sort of division between being and world. So there's all sorts of uh, philosophical problems that this solves. Um, but basically, that's where this whole phrase being in the world with the hyphens in, in between each word comes from, is that this is Heidegger saying, look, at bottom, there is no division between being and world. They arise together from the same basic whatever it is you can't have one without the other they're completely interdependent and so it's uh so heidegger is trying to work out what the consequences are of this new approach to what's called the ontological question or the question of what is being what is existence um one of the important things that comes out of this is that Heidegger, and I think even later Husserl, although not a lot of people talk about that, they describe one of the fundamental elements of our experience as being something called historicity. In other words, we actually are fundamentally historical entities. Um mm -hmm. And so you could see that this is something that uh, Marxists would be interested in because uh, Marx is so concerned with the historical development of society. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so the claim that Herbert Marcuse is making is that although Marx uh, is right, he doesn't develop the uh the hit the where it is in our experience that historicity uh is located and how it functions on a personal level and he seems to think that this is uh really important to answering the question of what is radical action what is revolution and 
why is it that people do or do not uh, engage in in the former? So you you said something interesting there. You Heidegger thought Marx was right about the significance of of the historical. No, no, no. Marcuse did. Marcuse's right. Marcuse thought Marx was right about the development of. Okay, that Marx is right, that hi- that history is significant and that our understanding of our being uh, should be an understanding of the changes that occur through historical development. Is that is that right? Is that the right way to put it? Yeah, I, w- I would say that basically we can't understand what anything means for, for a human without understanding it as historical. So, okay. Well, hold Everything on one meaning, one second yeah. there. But then you then you also said, but that but Marx was not able to locate properly locate the source or the foundation of um, of history, uh, for and how it operates on a personal level. So it seemed like you 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 located it, and was Marcuse maybe was locating it through Heidegger on a personal level, on the on the almost on a psychological level, maybe. Is that right? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean Heidegger would say no, no, it's not psychology, or uh, because psychology is thought of as this kind of scientific approach to the study of of human behavior, whereas phenomenology is describing experience and trying to get to the essence of it. Oh, okay, so but, on the level of our personal ex- lived experience, correct. rather than rather than our understanding of our uh, traumas or uh, the development of the brain or some scientific set of knowledge that describes how we have experiences, but rather the actual experiences themselves, which are primary, but, but which are also subjective, right? Individual. Uh, while subjective might be a, also one of these terms that's uh contentious in the tradition because of Heidegger's rejection of that whole division between being and world. But right. Uh, okay. But the question arises here. It's when you I've noticed what's happened in, in our conversation so far is that we were talking about ontology, about the question of being. Right. And then we began talking about forms of knowledge without yes. even meaning to. Uh, and so I, I, I'm just noticing that, that slippage back and forth between talking about being and talk, talking or ontology and talking about epistemology. Um, yeah. Go, so go that's on. A, I'll let you say more. About oh, I, no, no, you go on because that's actually, I think kind of a, uh, something that happens in philosophy a lot since this time period is this kind of slipping back and forth between ontology and epistemology. Right. So, but, but what, I mean, it it sounds to me like so far, uh, what I, what I'm hearing is that something about being for Heidegger and then, and then this essay that you pointed me to, um, uh, oh, I'm looking at the wrong thing here. Uh, this contributions to a phenomenology of historical materialism by Herbert Marcuse. Uh, he says, uh, that um, being the being that Heidegger is most interested in is a privileged form of being, specifically human. 
Right. Uh, and and that it is a the human experience, the lived experiences of humans that uh, are considered taken up as fundamental or ontological by Heidegger mm -hmm. and this move towards phenomenology. Correct. Right. Okay. So at that point though, it then suggests that the way that we experience the form of our cognition say has some relationship to the very being, the existential facts, the bare existence of, of uh, the world. And that that would mean there are multiple worlds, that there could be ways of being that are not this privileged human being, but like the being of an ant or the being or of a taco a bat, or a taco or, or a right. stone. Yeah. Uh, actually, that's something that even in this essay, Marcuse gets at is that there are multiple kind of worlds or like, you know, self-contained meaning structures that culturally uh, or I think the, he even says like nationally or racially or whatever di are different. Uh, and he gets into this um when he's trying to describe why class is such an important uh, concept in not just Marxism, but also in his own phenomenological understanding of things. Yeah. So what, what does he say is, are there different worlds, different ways of being different ontologies for, different classes in society according to Marcuse. Yes, basically. So what so one of the things he he gets at is uh the development of the working class goes from being a national consciousness, you could say, to being the universal consciousness, a universal class. And this is how he's tying it in with Marxism is that this creates the capacity for the proletariat to actually be revolutionary because their, their subjectivity is universalized in a sense by that uh, position in society. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I just was involved in um, an exchange of letters on at, at cosmonaut, which is this Marxist publication online. And, um, one of the topics that was being that we we were debating was whether or not uh, we could have a form of knowledge that was that got beyond uh, the ruling ideology of capitalist mm -hmm. society, uh, or whether or whether or not there could be a universal uh, understanding in society, or or if by calling for one, I was falling into ideology. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. 
If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.